I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Anybody who's been following the story of Russia under Vladimir Putin and the story of kleptocracy, money laundering, murder and Vladimir Putin's wrath against his enemies will surely know the name of Bill Browder. Bill was one of Russia's leading foreign investors until he was kicked out of the country. And then a few years later, tragically, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was killed in a Russian prison after having tried to expose a massive fraud that was taking place in Russia. Since that time, Bill has led global campaigns to hold Russians to account both on human rights and on money laundering and kleptocracy. And he's just published a fascinating, thrilling book called Freezing Order. So I'm delighted to have Bill with us here today. Great to be here. Bill, as I sort of laid out in that introduction, uh, your name is very familiar to anyone who's taken an interest in, in the Russia story. Uh, but I want to focus in on one thing, because it seems to me that this is uh, arguably uh, the key bit of work that you've undertaken in, in the past 10, 15 years. And, and it, it relates exactly to this question of kleptocracy, of money laundering, of theft by officials. And that's these so-called Magnitsky Acts. So perhaps you could explain to our listeners, what is a Magnitsky Act? Why did you call them that? And what impact do they have? The Magnitsky Act is a piece of legislation named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. Following his murder, I went on a mission to get justice for him. And I couldn't get justice in Russia because all of the People who were involved in the corruption scheme, right, leading right up to Vladimir Putin, wanted to make sure that no justice was done. And so we said, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And we came up with this interesting idea, which is that most crimes in Russia, and perhaps other kleptocracies as well, are money crimes. And the people who commit these crimes for money keep the money in foreign locations where it's safe for them. And so I went on this mission to freeze that money and uh, make sure that these people couldn't travel to these places again. And I started with the United States and the United States uh, passed the Magnitsky Act in uh, December of 2012. Yeah. And then I went on to Canada in 2017, the UK in 2018, EU in 2020, Australia in 2021, and then various other countries in between. <clears throat> We now have 34 countries in total that have Magnitsky Acts, and it's not a tool that just focuses on Russia. We can also use it against human rights abusers from China or Iran or Nicaragua or wherever, but it has become the template for which all sorts of sanctions are being used in this terrible aggression of Putin's in Ukraine. The template has now been used probably more than a thousand times against Putin's cronies and his oligarchs and so on. At the heart of it is a very simple concept, which is that uh, kleptocrats, 
um, you know, oligarchs, people close to the ruling regime, uh, both in Russia, but in other autocratic states, don't like to keep their money in those places, do they? They like to put their money in safe, law-abiding jurisdictions, places like the UK, places like various countries across the EU. And so realizing that that is a sort of soft underbelly of this uh, global kleptocratic elite, uh, you've targeted them in that way. It's really ironic. The, because, because these people took advantage of the lack of rule of law in their own country to steal money and torture and imprison people and kill them, um, they're now looking for places where there is a rule of law and where there's property rights, where that money can be held safely. And it creates this incredible Achilles heel for the Putin regime because they do all these terrible things and then they put their money in our country and now we have the opportunity to seize that money. And so nobody ever thought of this before when they were cooking up these schemes to keep their money safe, but but effectively they've put themselves in grave financial danger, not personal danger, but financial danger by this practice of keeping money in the West. And what's interesting about it is that if you go back 50 years or 30 years when, when there have been other terrible regimes, and, you know, the Khmer Rouge wasn't keeping their money in, in London banks and going to Saint-Tropez on holiday, but, but the Russians are. Yeah. And, and this whole sort of globalization of kleptocracy and, and globalization of oligarchs has really led to this opportunity to have a huge leverage point when it comes to their money and their travel. So let, let's talk a bit about the book, Freezing Order. Uh, it is, as I said in the introduction, it reads like a thriller. It opens with a, a tense scene in Spain where you're arrested on, on an Interpol uh, notice that the Russians had, had raised. Um, what do you see as the sort of the core messages from the book and, and perhaps the things that underneath that exciting narrative, some really important points that people perhaps weren't aware of previously? Well, the, so the book is all about getting justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And one of the ways that we sought to get justice was to figure out who got the money, the dirty money that he exposed and was killed over. And so we conducted this multi-year, decade-long money laundering investigation and had a bunch of lucky breaks in the midst of it. And we figured out who got the money. And one of the most shocking discoveries uh, and ex- which explained a lot about the whole our whole story is that some of the money went to Vladimir Putin. Yeah. The reason why that's so interesting for us, well, it's interesting for everybody, I guess, is that it kind of gives you a template for how Putin goes about running his kleptocracy, which is effectively he gets a cut of every crime. And we saw other people getting even bigger amounts from this crime, but he gets a cut of every crime. And the other thing that we discovered is that it wasn't just this one crime that had been laundered through this pipe, this money laundering pipe that they had set up, but literally a thousand crimes just like it. And we were able to calculate that in just from our investigation, the $232 billion of dirty money had been laundered out of Russia through one Danish bank through their Estonian branch, which is just remarkable. It's a, it's a staggering you have to stop and think about the size of that. We're talking Estonia is a very small country. Uh, Danske Bank, which you're mentioning there, is you know it's a relatively large bank, but it's still 
It's hardly a, a you know a top global bank, and one branch, two hundred thirty-two billion. It's amazing. My big sort of takeaway from our investigation is that if you were to probably look at you know other banks and other situations, you you'd come up with a number much larger than two hundred thirty-two billion. I, I you know in a very back of the envelope way estimate that the money stolen from Russia during the Putin regime is a trillion dollars. And they've laundered this money in the West. And the other huge discovery, and in a certain way, this is even bigger than the other discoveries because most people aren't conscious of this, is that in order to export all this money, you need to import it. And so there are importers, um, all these people smoothing the way for the Russians. I call them the Western enablers. Yes. You know, it's, it's just shocking. I'm glad you've mentioned those Westerners. It is arguable that one of the leading Western countries in providing what we might call concierge services to the oligarch elite is Britain. It, you know, you're in my home country. And in fact, I just wanted to quote a bit towards the end of your book. And you write, the largest amount of money associated with the $230 million crime didn't end up in New York or Spain or France or Switzerland, but right in my adoptive hometown, London. And uh, and then you go on to say, despite all the evidence I've presented to British law enforcement, Parliament and the British press, to this day, not a single money laundering investigation connected to the Magnitsky case has been initiated in the United Kingdom. So uh, here we are, we're, we're talking now in, in April We've seen Russia invade Ukraine. It's carrying out war crimes. It's repeating uh, the sorts of things that it did in Syria, but arguably in an even more intense and, and bloody way. And in other ways, you know, Russians such as your, your, your former colleague Magnitsky have, have, have been targeted and murdered. And there are other characters in your book, Boris Nemtsov and so on. And yet there hasn't been a single investigation here in the UK. You know, you're you're very connected in this country. You know politicians. You know the journalists. You, what's your understanding as to why that should be? Well, it's um, because there's no capability of of the British law enforcement to conduct a case, and there's lots of reasons. There there are both political, structural, financial, and perhaps even corrupt reasons why that's the case. On the political side. Nobody. There was no um, mandate for any of these investigations to happen because um, they nobody wanted to rock the boat. They wanted to keep the the flow of dirty money coming into into London because it was good for the economy. Yeah. On a technical basis, there's this weird absolute inequality of arms. The the government has very weak prosecuting capabilities, and the oligarchs, if they were to be put on the spot can go hire the absolute best of the best of the best, the creme de la creme of legal minds to tie up the government in knots. Yeah. Then you have a financial problem. And the financial problem is that the budgets for these law enforcement divisions are so small that they barely can do anything. And then, and then you add on to that, that in this country, if you lose a case, a civil case, the loser has to pay the legal fees of the winner. And so with a tight budget to start out with, the government doesn't want to take on any cases in case they lose because then they would be bust. Oh, and then we haven't we don't even talk about the corruption and it's hard to <clears throat> I don't want to name names but there are corrupt people in 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 these institutions who yep. are effectively on various payrolls and so you add it all up and there has not been a single economic crime prosecution against a Russian 
for any of this money, not just Magnitsky, but for anything in the last 20 years. It's worth just pausing on that because it, at the same time, I, I think most British people would believe that they live in a country that has a rule of law, that we, we take a firm line on Russia. You know, we had the Skripal poisonings. We had Litvinenko murdered here. We think that we're in a country that takes this stuff seriously, that, that, that stands up. You know, we're proud of our role in NATO and so on. And yet on this particular point, we just seem not to be doing anything. It's it's worse than not doing anything. It's it's basically giving opening up the welcome wagon and saying to everybody, and, and it's not just for Russians. It's for every kleptocrat everywhere in the world. Come here, buy property here, settle here, spend your money here, bring your dirty blood money here, and no one's going to ever ask any questions. Trust us. We promise. That's the message. Going back uh, to the narrative of your book, uh, one of the things that really jumps out is the way that um, I think, you know, by your own account, for you, this work became something of an obsession and, and it probably would need that to have achieved all that you did. But in a rather remarkable way, you became an obsession for Vladimir Putin, didn't you? Indeed. I did something which is unforgivable, which is I treated him with total disrespect. Everything that I did was not respecting his threats, his bullying, um, and his bravado. And I just kept on coming at him and coming at him and coming at him. And the reason he hated, hates me so much and hated me is that if I'm able to get away with this and survive, then I might give the impression to other people that they could do it. Yeah. His whole thing is this thumping his chest trying to bluff everybody into submission. And when you stand up to him and you succeed, it could give every, everyone else the opportunity to do that. And if they did, then he would be nothing and he would wither away. And that's his big fear. And so anytime somebody disrespects him, he's got to come after them with everything he has, everything. That's what I was the victim of. And in a certain way, that's what Ukraine is the victim of. Yeah. At one point in your book, you recount the moment, which of course became notorious as it happened, where President Trump and Vladimir Putin give a joint press conference in Helsinki. And of course, most people remember that for this abject performance from President Trump. And, you know, to this day, people wonder whether, you know, Trump seems so subdued as if he was sort of answering to Putin rather than to the American people. People wonder whether Putin sort of showed him some compromising material or did something to really unsettle him. But there was a specific way in which that conference targeted you. Could, could you say something about that? Indeed. So the conference took place in early July 2018. It took place on a Monday. And on the previous Friday, Robert Mueller, who was the US special prosecutor in charge of investigating the Trump's alleged collusion with Russia, had issued an indictment of 12 Russian military intelligence officers for hacking the 2016 U.S. presidential elections. So he issued the indictment on a Friday, and then the Monday was the, was the summit. And so, so as you mentioned, Trump and Putin go into this private room. Nobody was present. Yep. They come out a few hours later. There's a press conference. <clears throat> the whole world is, is looking on them. And one of the questions that was asked was by a Reuters journalist to Putin. 
And the journalist said, you know, Mr. President, could you tell us what, whether you're planning on handing over the 12 uh, military intelligence officers? And Putin had obviously expected this question. He kind of smiled, looked like he would spent the weekend preparing for it. And he said, yeah, I think it's possible that we could hand them over. But if we do so, it's got to be reciprocal. And he said, uh, if we handed them over, then we want the United States to hand over Bill Browder. <laughs> Me. <laughs> How did you feel? I mean, what, what was going through your mind and what were the sensations to hear Vladimir Putin tell the world that you were, were the price he was willing to pay? Both horror and, and gratification. <clears throat> horror <laughs> horror that, um, you know, that he was raising it to such a high level, but gratification that Obviously, I'm doing something right if I've gotten so far under his skin that he's ready to do this. And and moreover, Vladimir Putin is not a guy who ever mentions the names of his enemies. He doesn't. He no. always wants to depersonalize it. To to I mean, he doesn't want to show any respect to his enemies by even giving them names. Yeah. And so, but but I'll tell you what the really horrifying part of the story was. It was not him saying that. It was when the journalist, a different journalist, went to to President Trump, and said, "Mr. President, what do you think of this?" And he said, I think it's an incredible offer. That's when I got scared. You know, I've known Putin has been chasing me for, for years and years and sending out Interpol warrants and extradition requests. But to have the most powerful man in the free world say that's a, <laughs> an incredible offer, that scared me because I was in America at the time. I normally live in, in London. I'm a British citizen. It wouldn't really matter what Trump agreed with Putin because I'm not under his jurisdiction, but I was in his jurisdiction yeah. at that moment. Yeah. And I pictured a bunch of blacked out SUVs screeching towards my location, you know, so they could grab me, put me on a rendition flight to Moscow where I would then be killed. And that was horrifying. And it, it took Trump four days um, before he walked it back. And it was only when the Senate organized a vote where they voted unanimously, 98 to zero, not to hand me over, that Trump finally relented and decided that not, he wasn't going to pursue this, quote, incredible offer. Yeah, there but for the grace of God, because it, with Trump, you just know that he has no loyalty to anyone except Donald J. Trump. So uh, I can imagine the, the fear of those days. Um, let's talk a bit about Ukraine. It, it's kind of the elephant in the room of this discussion. Many things have happened in the short time since Vladimir Putin ordered the troops in uh, the tragic, uh, horrific error that he's made, but one that he now appears to be determined to follow through. One of those things is that lots of countries who may have been dragging their feet on sanctioning certain high-level oligarchs or other you know, supporters of Putin are now increasing the pace here in the UK, you know, some big names have been added to the list, notably Roman Abramovich, but he, he's by no means the only one. Um, you've done this incredibly important work, both to honour your fallen colleague, Sergei Magnitsky, but also because of its own moral power of, you know, confronting this sort of globalised theft. But is it possible to argue, I'd be interested in your views, and, and you might not agree, that in a way, Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine has shown that there's more going on than just him lining his pockets. You know, he, he's got this kind of fascistic global vision about how he, Russia, will dominate Eurasia. 
how Ukraine isn't a real culture. And, and obviously, he's, he's also invaded other countries like Georgia and so on. So is there a possibility that we need to be thinking beyond the question of money, which is obviously very important, in, on, on that bigger scale of this kind of cultural imperialism that is driving Putin's thinking? Well, I, I think that we need to be thinking about everything, but money is the root of this whole problem. It may not be the solution uh, to the problem. Yeah. In other words, the reason why Putin, in my opinion, is in Ukraine is that he stole so much money that the Russian people would have eventually risen up in some spontaneous moment like they do in all other kleptocracies and dictatorships that we've seen. Yeah. And, and he needed to prevent that from happening. And the best way of preventing that from happening was to create a war where his approval ratings skyrocketed, where everybody then gets into a nationalistic, patriotic lather, and um, he doesn't have to worry about people turning on him. I think that's where we are now. And, and it was caused by money. And he was, it's also caused by his absolute terrifying fear of being overthrown, because if he gets overthrown, he loses his money, he goes to jail, and he might even die. And so it's a very high stakes game for him to stay in power and to stay in power. He starts a war. And, and I don't believe a word he says about recreating the Soviet Union, NATO enlargement, EU, Ukraine discussions, et cetera. I think that's purely for public consumption. The one thing that's really important to, to, for everybody to realize is that he doesn't have a patriotic bone in his body. If he did, he wouldn't have robbed the Russian people of a trillion dollars, he and his cronies, over the last 20 years and left them with yeah. nothing. Nobody who's a patriot would have ever done what he's done. I think that's a really important point. So given the work that you've been doing in that specific arena of targeting the flows of wealth and the sort of kleptocratic plumbing system of the sort of global economy, do you feel, albeit perhaps after the horse has bolted, but do you feel that the world has caught up with what it needs to do about this stuff? I do, but it's too late. Sanctions are like medicine. Depending on the stage of the disease you have, when you take the medicine will have an impact on how the disease progresses. If you take the medicine early, you might not have a full-blown case of the disease. If you wait to take the medicine, it may not have as much of an effect. We've waited too long to sanction the oligarchs, and by the time we did, it no longer had any effect on Putin's psychology. If we had done it earlier, even in much, much smaller scale, and just showed him that what we were capable of, we, we might have changed his calculations. So now we're in a moment where it's, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient to sanction the oligarchs. It's just one of a myriad of things we have to do to cut off his financial flows. And I'm afraid that we're in a moment where Vladimir Putin has no choice but to escalate. And the escalation that we're going to see is going to be more heartbreaking than the most heartbreaking things we've already seen. Yeah. So as we try to look forward, in a way, uh, for understandable reasons, people have become very focused on the military question, on what, what Russia's doing in Ukraine, on how long the Ukrainians can hold out, whether or not NATO countries can support them sufficiently with, with weapons and, and, and other forms of support. But 
There is this other big story that you have really uh, put your hand on, which is the way in which autocracies, Russia being a notable example, but as you said, hardly unique, uh, autocracies manipulate open societies and open economies in Western countries in order to empower their own elites. Everyone is very focused on Russia at the moment, and they're sanctioning Russians. But we have Gulf countries, we have China, there are other Eastern European countries, and we could reel off a long list. What does the world need to start doing differently, which it hasn't been doing for the past, you know, 30, 40 years, to change the calculation for these people, these corrupt elites? Well, I think that we need to start making life really miserable for um, kleptocrats. Uh, we we need to create a hostile environment, and we need to do it not because um, I mean moral reasons we should be doing it for, but we should need to be doing it for national security reasons. That by becoming interconnected with immoral uh, dictatorships, you end up in this situation like we see the Germans in right now. They're so dependent on Russian gas that they can't be tougher on Russia because they're afraid of going dark in the winter. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We, I mean, the biggest herd of elephants in the room is China. Yeah, and we're so economically entwined with China. You know, it's it's something that we should be thinking about now, not when they uh, invade Taiwan or whatever it is that they're going to do next. I just want to sort of finish really by by going back to the book. The book is in some way a tribute to a man who you know lost his life at the hands of the Russian state, Sergei Magnitsky, and it is in that way a, a very fitting tribute. But it seems to me it's also a story about how certain countries, and particularly Britain, may have lost its way in in this sort of weird kind of idea that you know money, money is is not political. You know we, we need to have a, a financial system that that welcomes all comers. So specifically for the UK, where you know we have been very dependent on the financial services industry. And perhaps with Brexit, we're going to increase that dependence. What does the UK need to do to uh, wean itself off this this sort of over-dependence on dirty foreign money? Well, I think it's very simple. If we just start enforcing the laws that we believe exist, that, 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 you know, that, that are put in place that represent our values, then, um, then this dirty money will not come here. It's as simple as that. If we just using an American expression, you know, walk the walk. <laughs> yeah. If we actually do what we say we do, it will be fine. Um, but instead, you have all these people who went to the best universities with the poshest accents and the best suits, you know, acting as mafia lawyers and, that, and, that, and, and, doing, and then having their wives show up at the human rights fundraisers. I mean, it's just yeah. it's shocking. And that's, in a way, the, the way that it's sort of socially acceptable to be a mafia lawyer is perhaps a, an indication of, of the problem in the system. It won't be socially acceptable if, if we start enforcing the rules properly so that the, the, you know, these people get prosecuted for accepting the proceeds of crime. Yeah, yeah. Bill Browder, I, I want to thank you for talking to us today. Uh, your book, Freezing Order, published by Simon & Schuster, is widely available. It is an exceptional, exciting, but really important book. And, and I encourage all our listeners to read it. So thank you very much. Thank you. 
We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.